Hello and welcome to Truth in Journalism, a radio broadcast dedicated to applying the Word of God to current events. Well, today on Truth in Journalism, we're going to talk about rich men north of Richmond. Our story, which has been heavily edited for length, is by Hannah Anderson of Christianity Today and is entitled, Oliver Anthony's Viral Hit Doesn't Love Its Neighbors. Rich men north of Richmond is disdainful towards people on welfare. Christians shouldn't be. As a native of Appalachia, I can't remember a time when I wasn't aware of the plight of blue-collar Americans. Mine is a region shaped by the struggle for fair pay and safe working conditions. To this day, coal country is for many synonymous with hard living and generational poverty. So when I heard about Oliver Anthony's viral hit, Rich Men North of Richmond, a reference to powerful elites in Washington, D.C., I was excited for a song in the tradition of Johnny Cash, Pete Seeger, and Woody Guthrie, music that names the inherent dignity of the poor, lodges a protest against establishment excess, and echoes Old Testament calls for justice, like God's condemnation in Jeremiah 5.28 of those who have grown fat and sleek, yet, yet do not promote the case of the fatherless or defend the just cause of the poor. Then I heard these lyrics. Lord, we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to eat, and the obese milk and welfare. Well, God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. Immediately, I was transported back in time. I'm a 30-year-old mother of three again, standing in the checkout line of our local grocery store. Rhonda, the organist from the church that my husband pastors, is queued up directly behind me. She says hello, and I nod back. Normally, I would ask her about her grandbabies or garden, but instead I mumble an excuse about having forgotten bread and navigate my cart out of the line towards the aisles stocked with food. But I haven't forgotten anything. It's a charade. A charade brought about by the shame I feel because my family is on welfare and Rhonda is about to see me pay with food stamps. Add to this the language of welfare queens and the perpetual suspicion about whether SNAP participants were using benefits responsibly, whether our purchases were both healthy and frugal, or whether we were buying fudge rounds, and you can begin to understand why I hid in shame. Of course, many Christians never think or speak this way. Many are deeply compassionate and make sacrifices to those facing food insecurity. We can take care of how we speak about programs that provide needed care for the poor, remembering that a debate is only theoretical if your life isn't at the center of it. I understand why so many feel rich men north of Richmond gives voice to their struggle. Perhaps the only thing worse than watching your hard work be exploited and your dreams go up in smoke is the sense that no one notices and no one cares. But protest against wealthy elites and government corruption, no matter how justified, cannot ride on the backs of others who are also suffering. The price of accessing food through SNAP or a church food pantry must not be the poor's dignity and self-worth. Instead of trafficking in easy caricatures and political tropes, we must understand that the plight of our food-insecure neighbors is our plight as well. Put more simply, we must see their God-given humanity and honor it, something I'm certain Anthony himself would affirm. So I came across this Christianity Today article because of a Not the Bee article that juxtaposed this CT article talking about how Taylor Swift and the Barbie movie were bringing us all together, and the next day they published this piece about Oliver Anthony. I would say you could read the comment section yourself, but honestly, don't read the comment section ever. Now, I, unlike many of my conservative Christian brethren, actually read the article by Hannah Anderson, and I'd like to lay out a few observations about the article and then move on to my main point. 
The first thing I want to say is that her article makes several good points. At least on three occasions, she seeks common ground with Anthony. She gives him the benefit of the doubt, assuming that he and she share core value concerns. The body of the article is not ungracious. And as to the content of her concern, her concern that Christians often make assumptions about people on food subsidies, SNAP, food stamps, welfare, call it what you will, that's her concern. Christians do make assumptions that anyone on government food assistance is lazy and shameful, or at least Christians do sometimes, and that's not always the case. And let me let you in on a little secret. There are many, many, many pastors of small children whose families are on government medical insurance like Medicare or Medicaid, and there are many, many pastors with young children whose wives receive WIC food benefits. My point is that when Hannah talks about the assumptions that we make compared to the realities that exist, Christians can and should be thoughtful about how we speak. However, Hannah's article has problems, and these problems are not small. In fact, these problems are so significant that it kind of invalidates the article and my point. Let me lay out why. And I am paraphrasing, so read her full article to check up and make sure I'm not misrepresenting her arguments. But she says that she was excited about a song being an Appalachian herself who likes folk music and cares about social justice. However, there are four lines that she finds morally objectionable. And the reason she finds them objectionable is that because stigmatizing welfare recipients causes them to feel shame, and that's her argument. She says that Christians not on welfare should extend the same freedom to choose what food to buy to people who are on welfare. Basically, her argument is that whatever your political theory on food subsidies, you shouldn't criticize people buying fudge rounds if they're on welfare, if you yourself reserve the right to buy fudge rounds. Now, I don't actually agree with her argument. I, I don't at all. And the medical statistics would suggest that her argument is busted. The poverty-obesity paradox is a well-documented sociological phenomenon. Poverty and obesity are especially correlated for women. Interestingly, among men, the rates of obesity are relatively stable, about one-third. And, in fact, men with higher incomes tend to have a slightly higher rate of obesity. Statistically, there are a lot of people at or below the poverty level who are obese and who also have other significant behavioral health issues. And when government is giving out food, they ought not to give out fudge rounds and other unhealthy food. I'm certain that Oliver Anthony knows a lot of people who are poor and who receive food assistance. I'm certain that he has friends and family who receive government assistance. I'm certain that he doesn't hate people who are receiving assistance who genuinely need it. Nor would he say that there isn't a need for that assistance. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming these things, but, but I, I, I think that this is how he, how he thinks. If you actually listen to his song, he says multiple times that what concerns him is the plight of poor people and particularly issues prevalent among poor whites, despair, drug and alcohol abuse, and being forgotten by the rest of the nation. And since Anthony cares about the poor, he neither wants to see them alcoholics or chocoholics. Obesity kills more people than booze or even drugs and tobacco in this country. If he actually cares about the poor, which I think he does, then he ought to care about the fat poor. He doesn't want to see people five foot three and 300 pounds because that will just put him six feet in the ground. So Mrs. Anderson's point is a fair one. But that's what we call in the logic business a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. She admits that Anthony doesn't hate poor people and actually cares about them, and then she chooses to ignore the context of the song and attack one of the lyrics. Now look, she can point to the lyrics about fudge rounds and say that it shames and humiliates the obese poor or those on welfare generally, 
and we can debate her political points, but she's missing his point, which is that people do in fact abuse welfare. And there are people who are poor and who are killing themselves with junk food. I think that she owes him the assumption of nuance commensurate with the goodwill she presumes for him, or to put that another way, if she's being careful to assume good intentions, then why does she take a few lines out of context of the song and then analyze them in a decontextualized fashion? That's not nuance. Nuance would be to say that her interpretation of those lines is a possible one, but then to list other possibilities. And in fact, she doesn't even have to go that far. She can admit that she's taking a decontextualized look at the lyrics because she believes that those words reflect an ungenerous attitude among conservative Christians. But she has to admit that she's decontextualizing that to do it in good faith. So either she's deliberately decontextualizing his words because she wants to make a point and she doesn't care if it's a non sequitur or not, or she doesn't realize that she's decontextualizing because she A, believes that Anthony's uh, otherwise good intentions notwithstanding, he's wrong on this issue, or B, because she's not trying to say anything about Anthony but about an attitude that mirrors the lyrics in the song, or C, she just wasn't paying all that close of attention. Of course, there is another option, and that's that I'm completely wrong, and she's correctly interpreted Anthony in his song, and she isn't taking uh, lyrics out of context, because, you know, I'm wrong. But I do think that she's wrong that she's taking him out of context and is making a non-sequitur argument. But that brings us back to the biggest problem, the title. Now, I've said repeatedly that Mrs. Anderson has presumed good faith on Anthony's part, and she, in fact, concludes her article with a statement that she thinks Anthony agrees with her compassion and care for the poor. Well, then, why the title? Remember what she called it? Oliver Anthony's viral hit doesn't love its neighbors. Richmond, north of Richmond, is disdainful towards people on welfare. Christians shouldn't be. The funny thing is, is that I don't, I don't read that in the lyrics of the song, especially in context. And oddly enough, Mrs. Anderson doesn't really believe that of the author, and she tells us as much. So why the title? Does she believe that despite Anthony's being compassionate, his song came out as unloving and disdainful? I mean, she can make that argument, but she doesn't really defend it or explain how that could be. She simply seems to presume it. And I'm afraid that for me, that's not good enough. If she had titled the article something like, does Oliver Anthony's viral hit love its neighbors? Richmond North of Richmond reflects unconscious attitudes that Christians need to reconsider. That would be a perfectly reasonable title. It would reflect that there are unknowns about authorial intention and that there can be a gap between what we say and what we mean and that the way Anthony intends his words may differ from how people hear them. All that's true. And that may indeed be what Mrs. Anderson meant, but that's not what she said. And to me, the title writes a check that the content can't cash and kind of doesn't even try. It comes off as clickbait. It makes a relatively thoughtful article come off as a hot take. Titles matter. They matter an awful lot. And Christianity Today, which is all about nuance, should know this. But here's the thing. And this is my main point for today. Nobody really is all that upset that somebody came out with a, well, actually, criticism of Richmond north of Richmond. Christians miss the point and pull that kind of crap all the time. Far too many Christians just don't know how to take a win. And more's the pity. The problem is that CT ran a 
pro-Barbie article talking about how this extremely political and religiously divisive film is bringing us together and how a song that's a genuine bluegrass grassroots reflection of conservative and Christian feeling is divisive. The editorial point missing and tone deafness is so egregious, one presupposes it's on purpose. And this is the general take about Christianity today among normal evangelicals, and especially conservative evangelicals. People hear that Christianity today defends Barbie and attacks Richmond north of Richmond, and their response is, of course they did. CT loves to stand on its tippy toes, trying to be intellectual and nuanced and self-critical, but all that only goes one way. The CT default is to simultaneously say, ugh, gross, average conservative Christians like a thing, they're stupid, let's tell them it's trash, and wow, average Christians hate a thing, those conservatives are stupid, let's tell them it's a blessing from the Lord. It's this smug, well-actually condescension that people hate. And the irony is that CT is defending a movie that is made by and for the smug, condescending, well-actually crowd and attacking a song whose very intention is to unmask and vilify the smug, condescending, well-actually crowd. Anthony Oliver is lamenting and protesting the power of those who gaslight you and lie to you and manipulate you and pat you on the head and tell you to shut up and eat your fudge rounds, fatty. Eat the bugs and wear your masks, pores. That's why Richmond North of Richmond is a phenomenon. It's tapped into the anger and despair and resentment. And it's growing. And it's dangerous. Anthony's song protests the smuggery and corruption. And Christianity Today has either missed the point or are too focused on trying to teach the foolish fundy rubes to be nuanced, or they got the point, and they're just on the other side. And I'm not sure which is worse. I'm not saying Rich Men North of Richmond is the song of a generation that Christians need to make our anthem. What I am saying is that it's a cultural bellwether. The times are coming, and are now here, when our society is going to be shaken and there may be a great realignment and we will need good journalism to help sort out the hard questions. Journalists are in many ways preachers and prophets. We need good ones. We really need good ones and we need godly ones. And we should honor, respect, and listen carefully to those who are good and godly. But Christianity Today if it ever was that voice in the wilderness, then no longer is. We need new voices. I pray to God we'll find them. And I hope you'll join us again next time for another exciting episode of Truth and Journalism. Thank you, and may God bless your day to his glory.